Tyler's Barnes. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning together as family. Nothing really sweeter than doing this thing, Father, which is taking in the very bread of life, the Word of God. Thank you for this privilege of doing so. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love, your patience, your sovereign will in our lives. Father, we're just so blessed. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this morning for one reason or another. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit, that in your good timing, we'd like to have them back here for fellowship face-to-face. Father, we pray for those in this world that are still lost without hope, that before it's too late, they be humbled and receive saving faith. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality that we can just rejoice in, take stock in, be encouraged by, set our hope in things to come, Father. We're just so grateful. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Part 63. Let's begin with some Holy Scripture. Go to Luke 12, 4. Luke 12, verse 4. Luke 12, 4. <clears throat> Perfect place to start. The Spirit's had an awful lot to say about basics this past week. Getting back to basics. Anybody here think they've got all the basics down, Pat? Honestly, I don't know anybody that even has the basics crushed, nailed. No one, myself included. Right? This, this is boundless. Anyways, here's the basics. Luke 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Amen? Yeah, that's the perspective. That's what the Spirit's been hitting us over the head with. If it could just shake it into the souls of unbelievers. Perspective is key. This is one perspective that the world needs to understand. There's no fear, there's no respect even for the holy, sovereign God of the universe. It's incredible. Up here on the board, last week's blog stated this. Righteousness implies being right. This has been a pivot point for us this past week in our studies. Once a person understands their depravity, they are set free from the charade of maintaining self-righteousness. In fact, this is why a humble person gladly throws up their arms and asks for deliverance from their Creator out of fear and respect for Him. Proverbs 17, or excuse me, 1 7 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, like I said, this has been a pivot point for us this past week, especially on the topic of the gospel. Rejecting, despising biblical wisdom and instruction, as per Proverbs 1.7, is just about the most self-destructive thing a person can do. Just about the most self-destructive thing a person can do to reject truth, to despise it even, to reject wisdom and instruction, the Bible says that person is a fool. If we play it out, if you've been around long enough, you know that a person who rejects 
godly wisdom, it always ends badly for them. Because God is not mocked, you understand. He's not mocked. That's the end of it. There's no fighting God on this. There's no going, taking God to court and trying to find loopholes and, you know, the things that we do. There's none of that. Again, rejecting, despising biblical wisdom and instruction is just about the most self-destructive thing a person can do, starting with God's wisdom regarding salvation, of course. Go to John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. So start here. How's this for wisdom? How's this for basic wisdom? John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Again, how's that for basic wisdom? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A lot of foolishness out there right now saying that Jesus isn't the only way to eternal life, that he's not the only way to deliverance from hell even. That he's not the only way. So this is basic wisdom, wisdom that the whole world needs to understand. Rejecting God's will is incredibly unwise, infinitely unwise, and by definition, disobedient, as we've been studying, which warrants discipline. I shared some, dis or, uh, some details with you on Thursday about a conversation I had with some folks regarding the fact that the gospel is a command. That takes, I think that takes people by storm sometimes. Like, Wait a minute, I thought, I thought Jesus was like begging me to, you know, I thought this was like, you know, it, you mean it's a command? Yes. To believe in Jesus Christ for your own salvation is a command given by your Creator. There's no wiggle room. But I think the idea that it's a command escapes people. It's their own fault because most people don't even read their Bibles. In essence, if a person chooses to disobey the primitive command, this, this primitive, let's call it the primitive command. I mean, what else matters outside of salvation proper? So if a person chooses to disobey this primitive command, it warrants judgment and condemnation from God. Could this, could this scene be any more unwise? I mean, you're hacked off from God. Seems like the very beginning of wisdom to me. This kind of disobedience carries wrath with it. This is why unbelievers destined for hell are called sons of disobedience. Go to Ephesians 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Sons of disobedience. These are, this is, that's a reference to unbelievers. Why not just call them unbelievers? Because the truth of the matter is that they are disobedient to the will of God, to that one primitive, that first primitive command of all commands, which is to believe, they're disobedient to that. And so the Bible rightly characterizes them as the sons of disobedience. In other words, unbelievers. Same thing. Literally the same thing. Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, in reference here is those who are disobedient to the gospel command. And when I say the gospel command, that's my truncated version of 
the command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You understand? So when I use the phrase gospel command, that's what I mean. So this is a reference, sons of disobedience. It's a reference to those disobedient to the gospel command. Among them, or excuse me, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Jump forward to Ephesians 5, 6. Ephesians 5, verse 6. A little more on the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5, verse 6. Bringing in the wrath of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Unbelievers, in other words. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, that was just to show you what the Bible calls those who disobey the command to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, a.k.a. the gospel command. Those who disobey that primitive command are called sons of disobedience. Up here on the board. Disobedience implies the wrath of God. Disobedience implies the wrath of God. Go to John 3.36. John 3, verse 36. Disobedience implies the wrath of God. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, in other words, the, you know, the sons of disobedience, in other words, you see it all wrapped up into the same thought. Whoever does not obey the command to believe, the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God remains on him. In other words, it remains on him the way that he was born or she was born. We're born with that wrath on us, separated from God, destined for hell. Our only hope is salvation, is to believe, is to obey this primitive command. So the wrath of God remains on the sons of disobedience. Paul wrote about this as well in no uncertain terms. Go to Romans 2, verse 4. Romans 2, verse 4. So Paul wrote about this as well. Romans 2, verse 4. Verse 4 reads... Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his Works. Notice there that it doesn't say gum flapping. It doesn't say what you talk about. It doesn't say what you proclaim necessarily. It says he will render to each one according to his works. This reminds you of the principle from Thursday's message up here on the board. Proclamation never constitutes obedience. Action does action does. Don't just talk a good game. Walk the walk. What did we just read? Walk as children of light. You're now, you used to be darkness. Now you're in the light. Walk then in the light. Don't just talk about it. Proclamation never constitutes obedience. Action does. And this, look, this, this theme, this uh, parallel has been going for the last week. When Even with these kinds of statements we're talking about in the sense of positional sanctification for unbelievers 
for salvation proper. And we're talking about experiential sanctification for believers even. This applies to both of those situations. Right? Because there's a lot of unbelievers that even go to church, probably in a church today, right now, but they're in a church. And they say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. But they don't even know Him. They might even be able to recite some passage of Scripture, but they don't know Him. And He doesn't know them. So that's the unbeliever side. But also for believers... Proclamation never constitutes obedience. You can say you're being X, Y, Z. You can tell others that you're reading your Bible, getting all the messages, reading the blogs, spending time in prayer, doing all the right things, right? I get a lot of gum flapping thrown at me. I don't know why. Probably because I'm the pastor. It has nothing to do with me. But people like to play this game. Um... But God's not having it. So you're better off shutting your mouth and then just walking the walk instead of, you know, talking the talk. Again, verse 6, what's it say? He, said, he says, He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, there's the gospel command in full view again, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There you go. Sons of disobedience. Primitive, the primitive command of all commands is to obey the gospel. Obey the command to believe in Jesus Christ. The point of this little theological sidebar is that believing in Jesus Christ is the actual command in view there, which always carries judgment with it, whether good or bad. Anytime there's a command, right? You can fall on the good side of it, or you can fall on the bad side of it. God judges perfectly, and he says, you're either obeying or you're disobeying. Right? And so there's always a judgment. Whenever a, a line in the sand is drawn, here's the command. You will fall on one side or the other, and God decides. The passage that really stands uh, out on this topic is one that the Apostle John, uh, who's a, often called the Apostle of Love, actually penned. Go to 1 John 3.18. 1 John 3.18. So these are really important um, topics. It's a really important discussion. 1 John 3.18 Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you see it? Stop flapping your gums. Let's not do that. Let's not talk a big game. Let's actually do it. Let us not love in word. Or, and think about your families. Think about how much we've been given on our families. Fathers, mothers, don't just talk. Like, do it. Don't just talk a big game. Do it. Right? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's Holy Scripture. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. In other words, a believer doesn't just flap their gums, you see. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. You ready? This is the preeminent command. This is the one. This is the primitive one. This is the one that kickstarts the whole spiritual life. There is no spiritual life to speak of before this. And here it is. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. 
and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Those are harmonious, remember, right? And love one another, just as he has commanded us. But there it is, in easy-to-read print. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Boom. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know, this is verse 24, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So if you do ever question your salvation, the spirit will assure you, so says Holy Scripture. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. had a discussion with someone on this, I think, about a week and a half ago, how often people just, oh, God told me to do it. Oh, God says it's okay. Really? So we must have two different gods, because he's telling me the exact opposite. Oh, God's okay with this, because, you know, I am what I am by the grace of God. (laughs) Right? God's okay with it, that I break his law. God's okay that I'm being defunct. God's okay. No, he's not. No, no. That's a different spirit. That's the spirit from the world. Trying to keep you in bondage to your own idiocy, to your own arrogance towards the truth and the word of God. You see? You think you don't get influenced that way? I mean, I do. I don't know about you. It's really easy to listen to the wrong spirit, isn't it? when they're telling you, it's okay, it's totally okay. I mean, you went to church, you read your Bible a few times this week, you did all the right things, you know what I'm saying? It's okay to have a little thing on the side for yourself, you know, this little filthy little jar of disgustingness. It's okay because it's just a little jar. And God's okay with you dipping your hand in it every so often. As long as you keep this other stuff, you know, like the whitewashed tomb. (laughs) Right? Look at it. No, 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 don't look at that. Look at this. You see what I'm saying? I call it the 90-10 rule. Some people do that. Well, 90% of the time, I'm, I'm awesome. Yeah, but what about the 10? But, but, but 90% of the time, awesome. Yeah, but what about the 10? That 10 is really destructive to you, your family, your loved ones, your church, everybody, your life. It's really destructive. Don't do that right? Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. God's never going to tell you it's okay to have a filthy little cup of something on the side. Do you follow what I'm getting at? Well, we do play that game, don't we? We're like, oh, well, I'm being righteous most of the time. Therefore, I have my little filthiness over here. Show me that in the Bible. I'll teach it. Anybody? No, anybody takers? I got my Bible. You can come right here and say, oh, this is where it is, Pastor. It's right there. It says right here, God's okay with filthy cups alongside of as long as it's 90% or more. Right? You can keep your filthy cup. You know what I'm getting at? If that was actually in the Bible, I swear to you, I would teach it. But it's not there. We all know better. God would never do that to us. He would never encourage something that would harm us or others. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. Test the spirits. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Uh, 4.2, 1 John 4.2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John's writing, whether the gospel after his name or one of his epistles like this one, I mean, they're just such a mind blow. John, I can't, I mean, I can't ever imagine being bored reading John's words, no matter where they are in the New Testament. I just can't imagine it. They're just unbelievable. I could, you, we could spend the next year, more than a year, on just the first chapters of the Gospel of John and 1 John. Way more than a year. 
probably five years. Easy, just on those two chapters. It's unbelievable. If you're like, oh, gee, I don't know what he's talking about. Well, then read them. And then maybe you'll know what I'm talking about. Maybe you'll start perseverating over the filthy little cup over here. You know what I'm getting at? Maybe you'll spend less time focusing on this disgusting thing and ways to lawyer your way out of keeping it or into keeping it. And you'll read your Bible and be completely blown away and be like, what cup? Ooh. Ooh. You mean, ooh. That's so repulsive compared to the truth in John 1 and 1 John 1. You read that enough of that, this literally becomes repulsive. Anyways, that's pretty plainly stated scripture, right? 1 John, what do you, I mean, the question is, what do you think of 1 John 3.23 that says, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What do you think of that? I mean, it's kind of like, like right there, right? Okay. Up here on the board. The simplicity of salvation. Not only is the gospel easy to understand and digest, it is also tied to a command to believe it by the one who, with the exclusive rights on salvation. It's intended result. That makes sense? That too long of a sentence. I mean, sure, I understood that sentence. Let me read it again. Not only is the gospel easy to understand and digest, it is also tied to a command to believe it by the one with exclusive rights on salvation, its intended result. Yeah, that makes sense. You just got to read it a little slower. It makes total sense. In other words, the one who's actually got exclusive rights to saving us says, you ready? Believe this. I'm the only one that can say it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? I'm the only one that can say it with truth. Believe this. If you do, you're saved. I'm the gatekeeper. No one gets to jump over the side. I'm the gatekeeper here. No one else. That's how simple it is, though. It literally is that simple. The gospel is a command given by the one who's able to save us. If you want to be saved, if you want to spend eternity with me, believe this. Believe me. That's how simple it is. And just to add a dose of gratitude to that, we ought to think of this command to believe as a grace gift that is given by God who knows, knows that those who ultimately receive it, that's you and I even, presumably, if you're saved, I'm presuming you are. He knows that those who ultimately receive it spend real time looking a gift horse in the mouth. Who was saved the very first moment they heard the gospel? Nobody. Nobody I know. No one. And if you say, I was saved when I was six, I still don't believe you because I don't even believe that happens. I don't think you're capable of understanding your own depravity at that point. If you think, maybe we have a chat after class and I'll disprove it to you. So we all do this thing, right? Can you imagine, just conjure up the audacity of that. The creator of heavens and earth, our creator, the sovereign, holy God of the universe. We are putrid cockroaches. The holy, sovereign God of the universe goes, I'm willing to save you. Matter of fact, I'm going to come down, I'm going to die on a cross to save you. Are you kidding me? You know what I would do? into next millennium. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like, for real. Are you kidding me right now? And yet everybody in here does this and deserves this. Amen? Yeah. Everybody in here looks a gift horse in the mouth. So, a big thank you to God for his patience 
do a quick survey on patience as a friendly reminder. Go to 2 Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Second Peter three nine. Just a quick survey on patience. Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'm going to wait around while you make up your mind. That's what I'm going to do. Do you deserve that? No way. No way. Not even close. So what did you complain about this morning? What was it, honestly? What did you complain about yesterday? What were you moaning about yesterday? There's nothing we could say after this. We should never have anything but 100% gratitude. Man, we couldn't even pull that off when he gave us the gospel. All should, re- should reach repentance. Go to 2 Peter 3.15. 3.15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him. Go back to Joel 2.13, Old Testament, Joel 2.13. What are we complaining about, for real? What, do we ever have a right to even murmur? Joel 2.13. It's unbelievable. Joel 2.13. But we're not even talking about the context here in this message right now is is unbelievers. Thank God that he has patience because we were all there. Thank God he had patience with us. Joel 2.13. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Now just think about this. The incredible thing about our Lord, especially in the context of today's mockery of him, all you have to do is turn the TV on and everybody's mocking him. I mean, some of us mock him with our lives, that's a whole other story. But the incredible thing about our Lord, especially in the context of today's mockery of him, is that he persists in his patience. And we need to give this serious pause, my friends. Like, we don't just say, oh yeah, God's patient. And then, all right, I'm done with that. I, you know, I just want to move on from, no! We need to give that serious pause. That God persists in his patience. Think about it this way. Imagine being the holy... This is impossible, but just do your best. Imagine being the holy, sovereign, righteous creator. So out of nothing, you decided to create creatures like us. Okay? You're sovereign right to do so. So you create creatures who are rightfully destined for hell because... Pretty much from the start, they bailed on you. They disobeyed you. So imagine being the holy, sovereign, righteous creator and your creatures who are rightfully destined for hell decide to mock you in your offer to save them. You imagine being God for a moment and you offer to save your creature from eternal damnation, which is misery beyond even human comprehension, and they mock you. So let's just investigate this scenario on a much, much smaller 
less meaningful scale for a moment. Suppose you offered your own child, who somehow has become homeless, a place to live while they got back on their feet. And as winter approached, your concern for them and their family continues to increase, for they could all die of exposure. And your child's response is to mock your offer and spit in your face. What would your response be in that moment? Would you, would you be apt to react a little bit? I mean, who wouldn't? Right? We can't even make it past earthly families. All you are trying to do from a root of love and likely patience, because you probably watched them walk themselves into homelessness. But all you are trying to do from a root of love and likely patience was akin at a very small scale to the following up here on the board, Acts 16.31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. All of you. I'm giving you an offer. You can be saved from death instead of freezing to death out there in the cold, you and your family. You can all be saved. Just accept my offer here, you know? I'm willing. And that little scenario I just made up doesn't even compare to what God has subjected his own heart to. And yet, and yet, his patience persists. It's incredible. I marvel whenever I think about God's patience. And not just with unbelievers, because you guys are like, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with those unbelievers. But with me! And with you! Some of you just on your activities this weekend need a backhand the size of New York. What happened? Oh, was I talking to every single one of you? Remember that old, that old thing? Can you imagine? Seriously, because some of you are like, not me. Well, what if magically this screen turned into a display of your thoughts this weekend? Starting with the worst first. How many would you even make? Because some of them might actually involve things like murder, adultery, stealing, cheating, mocking, Disrespect for God. Disrespect for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Blatant disregard, ingratitude. Am I getting close? You follow? And so you'd probably bolt out that door faster than you could say, boo. That's enough for me. First one, boom, gone. All you hear is whoosh. Never to see them again. You follow me getting out of here? I don't know. It's incredible. Is that fair? God's patience with us is unbelievable. It's incredible. He doesn't just crush us. (laughs) On Thursday, we read Jesus' brother's words on the mockery that exists in this world right now. Go to Jude 17. We'll read it again real quick. Jude 17. Whenever you have... That kind of thinking juxtaposed to God, you have to have gratitude. Right? That's why he has me preach this way. To make you come face to face with who you are. Right? Think I'm even thinking about like this week's blog. Be yourself for yourself. Right? Don't talk a big game. Don't puff yourself up. Don't kill yourself either. Be who you are before the Lord. He can work with that. That's called humility. Do not do this. And don't send your neighborhood-friendly pastor your gum flapping, because I don't want to hear it either. You want to come to me as you? Great. 
You want to come to me as some avatar? You want me to believe who you are? Please don't. Don't waste my time. Please don't. I'd rather, you, I'd rather you come to me and say, hey, look what I did this weekend. And I'd be like, ooh, that's gross, huh? Right? I, please don't, though. It's just, I'm just putting it in perspective, right, on the scale of what I'd rather hear. In other words, if you know me well enough, like some of you know me pretty intimately, you know all I really ever want is somebody that's real. That's all I want. Just be real. I already know you're an idiot. You got him getting it. I already know you're terrible. I already know you have the worst thoughts you could pot, worse than you probably thought you'd ever have, because I have them all myself. I already know all that, so please, enough with the garbage. Enough with the, oh, you know, you know what I'm getting at? And I'm just me. That's just me. Imagine what God's like. God's like, can we stop this? Like, I know you better than you. Can we stop the charade, like, now? Because it's like, you know, like, what are you talking about? Right? Minds you of you. But didn't we do this and didn't we do I don't know you. Did, but didn't we so? This is just an avatar. That's not even who you are. I know who you are. And if we can get to that point, then we can talk about salvation. But as for as long as you play this little charade, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. Anyways, all right, you there, Jude 17? But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. In other words, understand that they are weak and try to help them to see the truth, right? Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To, those, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So, that was just our little sidebar on the simple fact that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation is a command. It is a command. Of course, we call that salvation. But even as believers, we ought to think of this pattern as something experiential, right? Because God saves us daily, amen? Yeah, not just positionally, but experientially. We require saving daily. We require deliverance daily. Hence this principle up on the board. Once a person understands their depravity, they are set free from the charade of maintaining self-righteousness. I kind of just put that in, I personified that a couple of minutes ago. Just be yourself for crying out loud. Be yourself for yourself. It's the very best thing you can do. Stop playing a charade. Stop, nobody, stop, just stop. Bob Newhart, stop it. What's my problem? Stop it. Right? And give me the five bucks at the door, because that's what he was charging. Just stop. You know, wouldn't that be nice? I think in, the, in the, this week's, it was almost, I think I, I'll paraphrase what I wrote. Um, is there a worse sentence in life than to try or even want to be someone else? That's 24 by 7 condemnation. If, if in your head you want to be someone else, or even worse, you don't just want it, but you're acting like someone else, you, you're basically under your own self-condemnation. You've basically decide, decided to your own detriment that you don't like who you are. That is the worst sentence of all. Like, where is it? How, do you ever, how would you ever be content 
in life if you don't even like who you are. Does that make sense? And the only way to get right on that is to say to God, okay, I see it. You know, like homologeo, confess, right? I confess who I am to you, Lord. This is who I am. You knew I'd be like this. Yeah, this is who I am. That's a great place to start. So stop acting. Some of you could be in Hollywood. For real. Some of you are better actors than Hollywood actors. Because nobody ever gets the real you. They always get some version of you or some avatar of you. Right? Just stop. For your own good. Nobody's impressed. You follow? Nobody's impressed. It's way more impressive. It takes way more strength to be who you are. Do you follow what I'm getting at? Like, just be yourself. Be who you are. Don't be some cop-out. You're only hurting yourself up here on the board. Again, once a person understands their depravity, they are set free from the charade of maintaining self-righteousness. In fact, it is why a humble person gladly throws up their arms. And whenever I use the word humble, I'm talking strength, because that's tantamount in the Bible, remember. So even when I just use the word, you know, Strength, I was talking about humility. Those are the same. This is why a humble person gladly throws up their arms and asks for deliverance from their creator out of fear and respect for him. One of the key features of last week's blog was that while we are blessed when we orient to God's will, we are never blessed by simply assuming we are oriented to God's will. We are blessed when we actually are, but we're not when we just assume we are. You know, this thing. Let's just say it's a bad idea to make assumptions about things of eternal weight. Fair enough. Here's the overarching guidance from the one who saves us positionally for all time and experientially in time up here on the board. This is a review from months and months ago even. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Verse 14 of chapter, excuse me, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And it's that sort of, hmm, right? Commandments and love, they're in the same sphere, same ball of wax. You can't have one without the other. Right? It's like throwing a coin at somebody. They get heads and tails. They don't ever just get heads at once, right? There's always a tail side. Same thing. That's all he was saying. If you love me, you keep my commandments and vice versa. So this takes us all the way back. All of that even. And do not think that that little sidebar was outside of the realm of our study. If you understand, that, ask Scott Grande. He started, he started listening to it, the gospel reload again. And he's blown away and he's an evangelist. Why? Because what he's realizing, I hope I'm not speaking for you, but... It's the same thing that happened with me and others. What he's realizing is that when you get the gospel right, you open up your Bible and it just literally just starts making sense. You say, of course that's what Jesus meant. Of course it makes sense. Of course these two verses make sense now. It makes total sense because now I understand the gospel. Now I understand what this is all about. I mean, the whole thing. I've said this so many times. I'll go to my grave, as far as I can tell. Believing this entire book is about the gospel. I actually believe that. Which means that if you get the gospel wrong, this thing becomes exponentially more difficult to understand. And some of you have been there because you had the gospel wrong. And to you, reading the Bible was work. And it was like going back to school. You're like, this is hard. i got to keep, oh my goodness, this is this and that and this and that and it's the doctrine of this and the doctrine of that and because you're insecure about the whole thing you start whipping people with your doctrinal knowledge because you're a, a petty fool and you don't understand it but you don't want anybody to really know so you beat down your relatives and your ex-Catholic friends and you blah 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 you follow what I'm saying? all for what? because you had the gospel wrong and it made you insecure rightly so which is when you finally received it, why when you finally received it, you were like, Eureka! Now I can read my Bible on my own and be content with it and not worry about 
complexities. Sure, things come up. Of course, you've got to learn the context of the time. It was 2,000 years ago. Big deal. Make it a little side study. Learn about the times, you know, when stuff was written. But at the essence of the Bible, it literally is just the gospel. Literally. God wants to save us. That's what this is all about. So, all of that takes us back to our primary course of study on family. Because here's my argument. This is why I threaded it this way. If you don't understand the gospel, listen. If you don't understand the gospel, you are going to do your family a huge disservice. You are going to set them up for a life of misery. And they're probably at some point going to go, that doesn't make any sense. Been there, done that. Christianity, Why? Wrong gospel. You gave them some watered-down thing that doesn't even make sense at face value. They open up their Bibles, they can't read their own Bibles. They're confused when they read their own Bibles. Why? Because the gospel's wrong. You gave them, look at even Benny's going crazy. Preach it, Papa. Right? I think that's him. Yeah. Right? That's what I'm saying. Like, you got to get the gospel right. Nothing works. Amen, Scott? Scott? <laughs> Scott said, mm, I guess I'll say yes. <laughs> nothing works in the Bible. If you got the gospel wrong, nothing works. And the more you read your Bible, the more complicated it gets. Versus the truth, the more you read your Bible, when you have the gospel correct, the easier it gets, the simpler it gets, the more edifying it gets, the more encouraging it gets, the more hope you have, the more faith you have, the more confidence you have. Amen? That's how it goes. That is the beauty of getting the gospel right. And so then we have this Petri dish where all of this, comes together in this small area called a house where multiple people are living with fleshes that are still lingering, yada, yada, right? And it's this collision that can turn out in a couple of fundamental ways, either to the glory of God or against him. Do you understand? So up here on the board... Maximum glory to God is the result of his love being present <clears throat> in a family. Christ's love, right? You love me if you what? Keep my commandments. Oh, so if I want love to be in my family, what also has to come into my family? His commandments. So if you're a leader of a family, then guess what? Straighten up. Orient to this, not your feelings. This isn't about feelings. Oh, but it, suck it up, buttercup. You follow what I'm saying? You chose to have a family, amen? You chose to have children, amen? Suck it up, buttercup. You signed up for it. Honestly, stop making excuses for yourself. You want to bring glory to God or not? I don't know. I guess that's a conversation you have to have with him. I'm just teaching the truth. And that's the truth. Jesus said, you want my love in your family, you've got to keep my commandments. This is how it works. They're the same ball of wax. There's no substitute for obedience. We learned that last time. Again, up here on the board, we saw this already. Proclamation never constitutes obedience. Action does. It's never enough to say, oh, I'm a good dad, a good mom, a good son, a good daughter. Good is defined by the one who is the singular source of all good things. There's no other good that exists in this universe except that which God has ordained. God is the wellspring of good. Go to James 1.16. James 1.16. I've got to pick a spot soon because DJ's coming up. I don't know why I said it like that, DJ. 
I was trying to get you pumped up. That's all. I'm just trying to, you know. Hey, it's daunting coming up here. Right? James 1.16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. You understand? Grace giving, in other words, is from God. That's it. Anything good is from God. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, what was good from eternity past, you ready? Drum roll, is good now. There's no such thing as God changing his mind. Somehow, you know, families were this way before, and now God holds them to a different standard now. No, 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 no. God's opinion, his viewpoint, his perspective on families has always been the same, even before mankind was on this earth. Even before that, his opinion about families has been the same. Jesus Christ doesn't change. Yesterday, today, forever. Amen? Every good gift is from above, without variation or shifting shadow. Any questions? So, we must conclude up here on the board. Since there, are no, there is no substitute for God, then it follows there is no substitute for obedience to Him. Again, God is the wellspring of all good in this world. And since there is no substitute for God, then it follows that there is no substitute for obedience to Him. And this is the key point. So let's step back and ponder this before I uh, bring DJ up here. What God says about marriage and family equals what is good. That's it. You don't get to make up your own rules. Right? And you don't get to ignore His. Right? Call it the sin of omission versus commission. You can get all fancy all you want. I know who you are. Right? With your fancy language. Stuff that's not even in the Bible. But I'm catering to you because you're weak. I got you. <laughs> it's simple, though. You ready? It's simple. What God says about marriage and family is what is good. Done. You don't get to add to it, and you don't get to subtract to it. That's Deuteronomy 4 2. Right? We cannot receive our definitions from the world. The encouraging news is that we have been given full access to the Word of God, that which is intrinsically good. It's our job to obey. It's our job to obey. I think I'm going to end there. DJ, you ready? Okay, guys. Uh, do we have uh, folks to hand out the elements? A little music.
Sorry about that. Good morning. The Holy Spirit had me come at the Lord's Supper today as what it represents as a command from Him. And that just holds true with what we've been learning from the pulpit and what I had to learn personally this week through humility that the gospel is a command. <clears throat> so in Luke 22, 14 through 20, it states, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God, through Christ, instituted the Lord's Supper as a visible communication of spiritual truth and a means of grace. Under the new covenant, Christ has converted the Passover meal and given us the Lord's Supper to strengthen our faith and union with him. We read the account of Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper in several places in the New Testament. In Luke 22, we learn several things about the Supper and its connection to the Passover. Jesus commanded us to observe the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover meal. And Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians where he states that Christ is our Passover lamb and has been sacrificed for us. As the Lord's Supper brings to light the sacrifice of Christ who died for our sins and gave us the road for God to save us. Just as physical food nourishes the body, so do we find spiritual nourishment for our souls at the Lord's table. When we gather in his name to eat the bread and drink the wine, at the Lord's table we feed on Jesus spiritually. As we begin our look at the Lord's Supper, we notice that the practice of this command is also a visible depiction of the death of our Savior. As Jesus says in Luke, today's passage, the broken bread represents his body and the poured out wine in the cup represents his blood, shed to institute the new covenant, new covenant with his people. When we taste the bread and drink the wine, we are reminded of the high cost that our Lord paid to redeem us from sin and from death. The preaching of the word of God delivers the message of the cross to us audibly. Partaking of the Lord's Supper delivers the message of the cross through sight, through smell, through taste, and through touch. As we partake of the supper, we should think on what the elements represent, and we should ask the Lord to increase our faith and make us grateful for saving us. Hebrews 9 when you finalize it, the verse in 25 through 26, it states, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not of his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. <clears throat> A final thought. Take this, because I had to learn it this week, that this is a command, and we are commanded to do this in remembrance of him. For I received from the Lord what I was delivered to you. I'm sorry. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of him, let us eat the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of him, let us drink the cup. For as often as you do this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. The Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honor of celebrating and worship you through this time. As we study your word and we fellowship together and we learn your word is the mind of Christ. We thank you for the gift and grace you have given to us through your son's work on the cross and all the good things are from above. May we use what is given to us through faith and bring it to the lost in love so some may see your love, the mercy, the grace, and the patience. And may the Holy Spirit use this information that is our honor to share to bring them to repentance for their salvation. Finally, Father, thank you for your guidance through your spirit. So as we travel from this refueling station and we go out into the world, you may use the words through us to inform people of your love and grace so that we can fill the command of delivering your gospel to the lost. We pray all of this through your son's precious name. And by the power of your spirit, we do pray. Amen. You are dismissed.